Welcome to episode 10 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this month's podcast, Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, speaks with Dr. Tiffany Osborne, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Acute and Critical Care Surgery at Barnes Jewish Hospital. Dr. Farsi and Dr. Osborne will discuss the details of the promised trial. Good afternoon from sunny, warm Florida. I am your host, Dr. David A. Farsi. And today I have the great honor to speak with a friend, a mentor, and a colleague. Dr. Tiffany Osborne is an associate professor for the Department of Emergency Medicine and Surgery at Barnes Jewish Hospital in Washington University in St. Louis. And she has dual appointments in the surgical ICU and the emergency department. Today's podcast is a very, very important podcast. Today we'll be reviewing the very last paper of what I called and what has been called the trilogy of the early goal-directed therapy. Dr. Osborne is the co-author of the latest episode or article of that so-called trilogy entitled The Trial of Early Goal-Directed Resuscitation for Septic Shock, which was published in New England Journal of Medicine in April of 2015 the so-called PROMISE trial. Tiffany, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome, and I hope you're well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you for inviting me again. I, I, uh, I appreciate being here. No, it's always a pleasure to have you. So for our listener, I'd like to give a quick introduction before we start the podcast. In 2001, Dr. Manny River and his group published a landmark trial in the New England Journal of Medicine called the Early Goal-Directed Therapy in the Treatment of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock, in which they used a protocol with the intent to restore systemic oxygen delivery through manipulation of preload and afterload and contractility in order to preserve effective tissue perfusion with the first six hours of patient identification in severe sepsis and septic shock. They used a central line, which had a SCVO2 monitor, and basically they drove SCVO2 to maintain above 70, either using blood or an inotropic like dobutamine, and they drove CVP to a supranormal 8 to 12 millimeter mercury using fluid boluses. Dr. River and all had a reduction in mortality in 28 days of 15.9%. This trial led a big movement on recognition and aggressive early care for sepsis. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign in 2008 and 2012 also recommended that early goal-directed therapy was followed and the recommendation was a class 1C. Physicians were asking what part of the protocol is really the essential part. Well, in a never 
done before three multiple center trials were started in 2008 in three different countries, uh, actually in three different continents. The first one was the process trial, uh, which was in the United States and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May of 2014. The second trial was the ARISE trial from Australia and New Zealand, which was also published in New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2014. And finally, the PROMISE trial, which was in the United Kingdom and was published this year. And today we have Tiffany, who is the second author. So Tiffany, is this a fair recap? Yeah, I, I would say that that's a fair summary. I mean, in general, the thought process was that um, the majority of septic patients that were coming in were volume down, and they needed volume. And before you added a presser, you needed something to press. And so the thought was make sure that you have sufficient volume. If you're still requiring, uh, if you're still if you're still hypotensive, then you know add vasopressors. And you know then the point was. Well, is your source of hypotension the fact that you're, you don't have good squeeze in the blood vessels or is the problem that you don't have good squeeze in the heart or is there still an oxygen deficit? And, and so that was the reason for looking at SCVO2 was the idea to say, okay, look, oxygen delivery is based on how many you know, red cells, hemoglobin you got carrying oxygen and how well your heart can pump the oxygen out as well as the issue of the preload. So once you had the preload taken care of, you'd started vasopressors to keep your main arterial pressure up, then the question became, well, do you still have an oxygen deficit? And they used the SCVO2 for that. And if the hemoglobin, the post-resuscitation hemoglobin was good, then the next thought was, well, then it must be the squeeze. And that was why they, they added the dobutamine. Correct. So one of the questions I had, did all three of you, and I'm sorry, when I refer to the three, I refer to the arise, the process, and the promise. Did you all get together before and use a similar protocol and discussion, or was this each three trial were independent? So that's a good question. And we, so when I say we, you know, really it was the principal investigators of each group. So Kathy Rowan was the principal investigator for Promise. Um, she was heading ICNARC at that, you know, that time. So the principal investigators of each group got together and decided that it would be good to have a methodology that was similar enough that at the end they could pool the data to do a patient-level meta-analysis. So we did, we, there were conversations ahead of time to try to have a fairly similar uh, methodology. Great. So just for the rest of, the, of this podcast, I just mainly like to focus on the PROMISE trial that you were the investigator for. So the trial was set in the United Kingdom, 56 Hospital. Tell us a little bit how you got involved and how I got started. Well, I became involved because at the time I was living in England. So I, um, I had, uh, my, my husband got transferred to England. I'd gone back and gotten a, a, a Master's of Public Health at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And 
I had already met Kathy Rowan and David Harrison through we, similar circles. People We knew mutual friends. Uh, but Kathy was also associated with London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So when I was finishing up, uh, she was asking me to come on board and help with the, you know, creating the protocol, working as the trial clinician. And I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. And so, yes, it, it was 56 sites, um, academic as well as private institutions across, um, predominantly across England. Yeah, great. And this was a randomized control trial? Yes, it was a randomized control trial. Okay. One of the things that in the early goal-directed therapy from 2001, all the patients were assigned in two different groups, um, the early goal-directed versus standard of care. Now, now, I wouldn't say standard of care. I would say usual care. Usual care, correct. Usual care. Right, yeah. Because what are you, you know, usual care may or may not be whatever we consider to be standard of care. So, yeah, usual care. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's a great, great correction. Um, one of the things I like to point is in the PROMISE trial, each and every patient before entering the trial received antibiotics. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's a big, kind of a big variation from the early goal-directed therapy. Yeah, so I think, so there are a couple things um, that would probably be helpful to point out. So we were talking first about, you know, what exactly was our methodology? Well, also, what was our population? Is it applicable to what we do in the emergency department? And so these were ED patients. Um, They were randomized the randomization process was concealed, so it was people didn't know how the decisions were made. It was all variable. And all the groups were treated equally except for the intervention. And the intervention itself, we, it was run on an intention to treat. The entire study was run on intention to treat. So all the patients had to meet the definition that we had for either severe sepsis or septic shock criteria. And so that was you had to have a lactate that was greater than or equal to four, and you had to have persistent hypotension after one liter of fluid. So how did we say what hypotension was? It was if your systolic pressure was less than 90 or your mean arterial pressure was less than 65. So you had to have had early identification. So early identification... You had to have early IV fluids. You had to have early IV antibiotics. And then, at that point, you qualified for randomization. And once you qualified, once you met criteria, you had up to two hours from meeting just your severe sepsis, septic shock criteria to um, being randomized into the trial. So what what was the average of the patient at the time of entering the emergency department to the time they were randomized? So this is a very good question, right? So you're, basically what you're saying is you're asking what was usual care in the trial, 
that that's what you're getting at. And so you're saying, okay, Tiffany, you're telling me early identification, early treatment, early lactate measurement, what does that mean? What did that equate to? That's a, and that's a very good question. And so when we say early identification, the median time from triage to being identified, and remember identification was, did they meet the SERS criteria? Did you think they were infected? You know, was their lactate elevated or were they hypotensive? So, so that identification point was a median of about an hour and a half from triage. So that's when we say early identification, what does early mean? It was a median of 1.5 hours from triage. So then when we say early treatment, well, what is early treatment? So early IV fluids for shock patients... So they received two liters prior to randomization. Now remember, what was the median time to randomization? It was about it was about three hours from triage. So it, it was it was pretty quick. So our median identification was about an hour and a half. Our median time to randomization is about two and a half hours. And you know. Every time people look at the early goal directed therapy, people talk about the Apache scores or the, the degree severity of the patient population. In comparison to the early goal directed, your Apache scores were fairly lower, like 15.4 or 15.8, mm-hmm. um, compared to 20.4 and 20, 21.4 in the River study. What are we attributing this to? So you're right. I mean, they were sicker patients. And the other question that I get asked about as well is, you know, why was the SCVO2 so much lower in the Rivers trial? So um, remember that when the Rivers trial was being run, that was in the late 1990s and 2000, right? It was published in 2001. So it's the late 1990s and 2000. So think of back for a second. So those of us who've been, you know, kind of doing this for a while, remember what we used to call levofed. Leave them dead. <laughs> Leave them dead. Okay. So how, you know, when you think about, we called them leave them dead. Why did we call them that? Why do we because, say that? Because that was the last resort that we used it on patients. That's right. It was the last resort, right? Because when you gave levofed, you ended up with digits falling off. You had limbs that had to be um, amputated. You had, I mean, arms, legs. It, it, they, they were just necrotic and black. And so why was that? How did levofed go from being the harbinger of death and destruction to becoming the number one drug used for um, hypertension for for severe sepsis and septic shock, or for septic shock. What's the difference now? Why did we go from that's sure death to that's the number one recommended drug to use in septic shock? Well, I, my answer would be through evidence-based medicine. You know, we've now seen lots of trial over the years uh, that both dopamine and levofed are safe vasopressors. And back in the 90s, you know, it was more... in opinions of experts. Well, I, I would agree with that. And also I would say 
that at that point in time, the care, the focus of care was different, right? So we were looking at increasing pressure. We were looking at making that number normal. And so vasopressors were being given, but you need something in the vessels to press, right? So we were actually reducing end organ perfusion because there was nothing in the tank, and we were continuing to give something that was going to squeeze the blood vessels, right? So in the 1990s, there was a very different care paradigm. And so when, when Rivers initiated this trial, it was in the environment of that. This is what you were seeing, right? Uh, and, correct. And I like just to recap for some of our younger residents who might be confused and don't understand. But a lot of the study prior to Rivers, uh, especially on critical care, were published from the critical care, actually meaning the ICU. And when you look at some of the big names like Shoemaker, studies on supranormalization, they really started after six hours of patient arrival. And then the conclusion why it doesn't show any benefit. But for a lot of people, we ask, well, why wait six hours? And that's generally because by the time they had their visit in the emergency department, they got admitted and got to the ICU, the average time was six hours. We're talking about now, you know, starting from the moment the patient enters. So it's also a difference mindsets. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so when you think about, well, what's the difference? Well, yeah, the patients were sicker. The patients were, were sicker at that point in time. Think also as well, I mean, EMS and all three trials. I mean, I know I'm just really need to speak on my own trial's behalf, but it was, you know, the EMS was giving a median of 500 to 700 cc's of fluid before they even got to the emergency department. This was not the paradigm in the late 1990s. Additionally, when you think about, well, why was the SCDO2 so much lower? Well, remember as well that our central line didn't get put in until after randomization, but yet their central lines got in really before randomization. So it was an earlier time frame to their point of arrival, and uh, you, know, you were capturing a different patient population, really. Great. So. I think this leads to, a, to one of my points that when I lecture about this, I kind of speak a lot on this. The cardiologist, um, actually, there was a very nice trial, uh, actually, a paper that was published in the cardiology literature um, that talks about penetrance, um, that after a pivotal clinical trial is it, it's published, it takes about two years to make it into the guidelines. Then it takes an additional 16 years from the guidelines to penetrate among 90% of practitioners. So from the time the trial is pu published, it takes two years to make it into the guidelines, and then another f 14 years. So that's an average of 16 years that for 90% of practitioners to, to kind of follow the trial. So when we look back... You correctly stated that the trial was published in 2001, but it was actually in the late 90s when it was in the actual phase. Um, and it really emphasized sepsis as a time-sensitive disease, early recognition, uh, early aggressive therapy to decrease mortality. The surviving sepsis campaign published 
def definition in 2004, then they made their first recommendation in 2008, and then again in 2012. Uh, the trilogy started in 2008. So can we say that in between that time, that early goal-directed trial has been published, practitioner change their mindset and their maybe their therapy? Oh, yeah, I think, I mean, that's what we were getting at a few minutes ago. I mean, it's a difference between what care is in 2015 and what care was in the 1990s. I mean, given the attention and the focus on sepsis, it is highly unlikely that usual resuscitation has not improved over the last 10 or 15 years since the study by Rivers and colleagues. So it, it definitely, I think, that that's an important consideration. And, and additionally, you know, when interpreting the results from Promise and the, the other harmonized trilogy of trials, including Process and Arise, it's important to keep in mind that the patients recruited to Promise were identified early. They received a median of two liters of IV fluids, early antibiotics prior to randomization. And in this group of patients, the subsequent algorithm-driven early goal-directed therapy, you know, that rest of the six-hour protocol, um, including that continuous central venous oxygenation monitoring, did not show an improvement in outcomes. Or, or cost of care. But look, if these studies had been done in 2002, there may have been very different results, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So really, it, and, and I say this because, you know, I've been to different places, I've heard different things, and I've heard some people say, you know, was, was the Rivers trial a, um, a failure? And actually, no. It was, a, it was a success. The fact that these three trials are now uh, showed no difference to usual care is actually, you know, could be seen as a testament to his legacy. It could be seen to the impact that he had for early recognition and early treatment of these patients when before they, you, they were not seen as important. And um, I cannot agree more uh, with you, I don't think it shows a failure. I think we're coming to the conclusion, of what, but just to make the point now, and I'll come back, uh, I completely agree with you. I think Dr. River should be commended uh, for his work. I think Dr. River really led and opened the eyes to everybody in the emergency medicine world that this is a very important disease and that mortality can be significantly impacted by aggressive uh, recognition, aggressive care, and the timely care. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, in today's age, when a resident or an attending reads a paper, they skim through the paper and jump to the conclusion on, you know, oh, that's it, early goal directed is, 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 is dead. This is, you know, I've read editorial that, you know, this is the last coffin, that last nail on the coffin. Um, and I want to jump up and scream up and say, wait a second. There's nothing that we can say uh, that early goal directed is dead. Yeah, exactly. And look, here's the other piece. This is a nail with caveats, okay? I mean, from a population standpoint, in institutions where usual care entails what we just talked about, a system for consistent early identification, 
early IV fluids, um, you know, uh, early IV antibiotics, early lactate measurement, that's a system in which you may be able to expect the same outcomes. But look, if you're not doing that, then you can't expect that you're going to get the same outcomes. People say to me or ask me this question, how is it that you did all this care, right? And how can all that care be equal to no care? And that's because they're equating usual care to no care. Usual care was not no care. Usual care over the last 15 years has changed to include all the things that we just got finished talking about. And look, the rest of that six-hour protocol, what it's saying is from a population standpoint, it doesn't need to be applied to everybody. But that doesn't mean that there aren't segments of the population in which it could potentially be beneficial. The, the patient-level meta-analysis can hopefully tease this out a little bit more to get a better feel for what that is. Where is it good? Where is it not? Um, but... You know, this was, if you're not, if you're not getting those, those main pieces down, if, and you're not following it, just because you think you're doing it doesn't mean that you're really doing it. Just because you're doing it doesn't mean that your group as a whole is doing it. So not only do you need a process for implementation of early identification, early IV fluids, early antibiotics, and early lactate measurement, you need a QA process that shows that you're continuing to meet those goals. And if you're not making those goals, you can't expect to, to have the same outcomes. Absolutely, and just for our resident and our uh, community doctors out there, I'd just like to point out, uh, to emphasize Dr. Oz's one point, that in, bo in the PROMISE trial, uh, the early goal-directed therapy group 92.1% received Centraline uh, because of the SCVO2 and the CVP monitoring. But the, in the, uh, the usual group, 50.9% 50, received uh, Centralines. And if we even look at the arterial line in the early goal-directed group, 74.2% received A-line. And in the usual care, 62.2% received A-line. So, I mean, we are talking about a more aggressive care that, you know, the usual care of just looking at the patient and, you know, ordering some antibiotic and walking away, that's definitely not what usual care in the PROMISE group is. Yeah, I can't guarantee we weren't doing that uh, in the 1990s. Oh, no, absolutely not. I remember having a hard time. The first time I placed an A-line in, in the emergency department, Ten years ago in Florida, somebody looked at me like I had the, a set of uh, a third set of eyes. Uh, so, I just want to recap a very, very important point for the residents because um, I bring this all the time. Uh, the reason we talk about anti early antibiotic and sepsis comes from a paper published by Dr. Kumar and all out of Canada that showed that there is an increased risk of death by 7.6% every hour that pass by if you don't give antibiotics. So for the community doc and for the residents, ordering it on paper is not just okay or ordering a new computer system. It's also having a full, like Dr. Osborne talks about, a full system place where the antibiotic is stored in the emergency department so you don't have to call pharmacy and 
have more delays in bringing it to the to the patient. But it's really you know you're ordering it and going to the nurse and say, hey, I just ordered antibiotic. Let's go. Let's go hang it because the delay really will impact the mortality. And that, and we'll have to say that that's not just community or residents. I mean, that's everybody. I mean, I've been, um, I've consulted with some groups that are trying to implement, you know, the sepsis program, you know, to be compliant with the new CMS guidelines. And I can tell you that in their systems, there are several systems in which the community centers um, are, are performing much higher than the academic centers. A lot of that has to do with the fact that they can implement things a lot faster. So just because you're at an academic center does not mean that you're hitting what you need to hit. So when I look at the trilogy versus the early goal-directed therapy, one of the points that I generally try to get out is that the usual care that we're doing today in 2015, you know, early recognition, early identification, aggressive fluid therapy, lactate normalization, antibiotic, that we don't need to place a central line just for the CVP measurements. That if a patient is hypotensive or requires vasopressor, that I tell my residents, let's go ahead and follow the CVP because we already have a central line. Now, what do I do with the number? You know, that's an entire, we have a podcast on that, but generally it's just an added metrics that I look at. Uh, I don't just place a central line because of patients in severe sepsis for CVP measurement. That, I think, the trilogy has proven that's not necessary. There are... So if you're, if you're talking about CVP, I mean, I would agree with you that there are other methods of determining intravascular volume or assessing intravascular volume that would probably be more um, accurate. So I would agree that, that um, CVP is, is not, um, it's not necessary to be concerned about CVP as long as you are having some sort of volume assessment. So I would definitely agree with that. I don't think you need a central line for that. So, and, and in the majority of patients, I don't think that um, you need to consider an SCVO2 either. If um, There may be certain patient populations in which that is very helpful. Um, but for overall general population, it, it doesn't appear to um, be an issue of concern. Now... Having said that, remember back in the late 1990s, we didn't have ultrasound. So what were they, what were they looking at? When you look at SCVO2, I mean, you're considering, do you have an oxygen deficit? Is your demand greater than your supply? Right? And if, if you can't look at the heart and your SCVO2 is low, then you got to think, well, is it blood or is it um, the contractility of the heart? And if you can't see the heart, then you have to do, make your best guess based on the information that you have. I mean, remember, in the 1990s, the majority of EDs did not have ultrasounds in the ED. It wasn't there. It wasn't there. So, yeah, so 
things are supposed to change. Our data, our understanding is supposed to evolve. He created that foundation, that structure upon which to build. And we have better ways now to to do those measurements, to make those assessments, to make those clinical decisions that we didn't have back in the late 1990s. So I would agree with you. We, we don't need a central line if they are severe sepsis. Um, regarding septic shock, I'll tell you something that is becoming a little bit more controversial. You know, there is a whole movement about we, can, we should be able to give vasopressors through peripheral IVs. And the, the study that cited for that basically said that, that there were more complications associated with doing that than without doing that. Now, you can argue about the fact that um, what was listed as complications, we wouldn't really see as clinical relevant complications. There are some people who feel very strongly that we should be, um, we should be, um, able to give vasopressors through a peripheral IV. Um, I would I would advise caution on it right now. I'm not saying that it's wrong. What I am saying is that there's not sufficient data to be able to advocate for that on a national level. In, in my opinion, in my opinion, and if you're going to give vasopressors through a peripheral IV, then it, it really should not be a 22 in the thumb. I mean, that needs to be an 18 or 16 gauge that's in the antecubital fossa. It needs to be something that's, that's going to be, that's going to be safe. But um, for my personal practice, I will, if I have someone who's persistently hypotensive after I've given them their fluid bolus and it's not turning around, then if I've got a good IV, then I will start the vasopressor there while I'm putting in the central line. But at this point in time, and as we have more data, my sentiment may change. But for right now, given the limited amount of data, that's not something peripheral vasopressor for um, a sustained period of time is not something that I'm gonna I'm gonna advocate. If it's for a couple of hours while you're trying to get a, a central line in, I think that that's reasonable because you don't have another point of access at that point. Um, but if you're thinking, you know, for the next eight hours, I'm gonna keep them on the on a peripheral IV. I it may be that it's okay. I just don't think we have sufficient data to support it at this point in time. Hopefully, we'll get more data that will that will change that one way or the other. So I cannot agree more than what Dr. Osborne just said. Uh, there's no evidence right now talking about peripheral. Um, it's still recommended to use a central access in the event you know you have to patient is so sick that you have an IO, you have only a peripheral, you may start it, but definitely for the long term, uh, a central line is the preferred until the evidence is shows the contrary, but right now there's definitely not enough evidence uh, to show the contrary. Um, so just to recap, um, and I'll give you my conclusion, but my conclusion, what I take out of this is you know the early goal directed is not dead. That what we're calling usual care in 2015 is actual a modification of the early goal directed therapy. That Dr. River really is to be commended 
um, for opening all of our eyes on this very important disease. In the last two decades, if we compare the mortality of sepsis from early 2000 to now 2015, there was a major change from 48% back then to 20% and 22% if you look at all three trials, uh, significant changes. Uh, so for, for me today is, you know, I tell my resident, you have to have a system in place to recognize those patients as soon as we can, Aggress- treat them aggressively with early antibiotics, preload by giving them fluid, check their fluid status, ultrasound, whatever method we use the ultrasound, uh, and you know, vasopressor as needed via central line. Dr. Osborne? Uh, Yes, you know, I would agree with you that um, given the attention on on sepsis that it's highly likely that usual resuscitation has improved over the last 10 to 15 years, and that's an important consideration. And I would also say, as you just did, that um, usual care is not equal to no care, that usual care in all three of these trials had early IV fluids, early antibiotics, early lactate measurement, and a consistent system for early identification. And I'll throw in another piece for you, too, that um, I think is important to consider is that we're giving volume, and we need to be thinking about how we are measuring that volume, how we're assessing our intravascular volume as well. So, um, And I agree with you that... Dr. Rivers took a patient population that nobody has really been able to, was, nobody was really able to make a dent in the mortality of this, of this patient population when we were looking at a lot of these ICU studies. And he brought attention to it and demonstrated that if you find them early and you treat them effectively, that you can save lives. Now, what that treatment entails now is different and it's supposed to be different our knowledge base over 10 to 15 years is supposed to evolve if we're not evolving then we're not doing our job so it, what we do now isn't supposed to be what it was like 10 to 15 years ago but the idea that this was important um, that that came from him and in the 1990s that was um, that was a, a concept that was not universally accepted. And just to add one more word um, before our, we finished, I tell my residents, and they know this, that, you know, for, well, back in the 90s, we talked about the early gold, the golden hour of trauma. Within one hour, we had to get patient. You know, today, we talk about getting patient STEMIs to cath lab within an hour. Uh, we're talking about you know TPA within 90 minutes, uh, and now we talk about sepsis getting within an hour. And I think this is a great, um, a great because of Dr. River that this has become you know part of that vocabulary of getting those people antibiotic and aggressive care within a very short time. Dr. Osborne, it's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be able to discuss such an important topic. Any departing words you would like to say? It's always a pleasure to have the discussions. Thank you for 
for having me back and um, I, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to have a, um, a good discussion on this. So thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next episode, where Dr. Farsi will discuss more issues of importance for emergency physicians.